Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 19. We're going to be looking today at 17 through 21. And then we'll jump to chapter 20 and look at verses 1 through 3 today. The title of today's message is The Conditions Required for Rescue. The context that we're in, we're obviously in the campaign of Armageddon. We're dealing with the second coming. And in your bulletin, I put an insert entitled The Campaign of Armageddon. And as you can see in the Campaign of Armageddon, there are eight stages. We've dealt with some of them, the assembling of the allies of Antichrist, the destruction of Babylon we've dealt with. We're going to see the fall of Jerusalem, the armies of Antichrist at Basra or Petra. And then later on, we'll study the national regeneration of Israel today. And then the second coming of the Messiah today. And then uh, we see in number seven, the battle of Basra ends at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And then the victory is sent up the Mount of Olives. And we'll study all that in time. But today we'll deal with several of the stages of when the Messiah comes to rescue Israel. And that's what you have to understand about the second coming. The second coming is a rescue mission for Israel. What we understand from reading the scriptures is that there are two preconditions that are required for Israel until Messiah rescues them. So they have to meet these two conditions and then Messiah will rescue them. If you remember what Jesus said, he told Israel, you shall not see me again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So basically what they have to do is they have to have a national repentance and then they have to plead for Messiah to save them, saying Hosanna, and that means save us. And basically that's what will happen. We'll study that today. Well, as you can see on the screen, there's a map of Israel, and I marked out for you Jerusalem, and then there's Petra. And what will happen is, once the abomination of desolation is set up by the Antichrist, a group of Jews who remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee into the desert. Well, a group of Jews who either come to faith in Christ or heed what he says, they go into Petra and they go run into the wilderness, and they stay in Petra. The other group who does not believe what Jesus said stays there in Jerusalem. So you have two sets of groups, one in Jerusalem, one in Petra, and one in obedience, one in disobedience. And so the Antichrist comes to attack both groups. He attacks Jerusalem and sieges them for three and a half years, and then he goes in and attacks the other group in Petra. And we see this in the scriptures in the Old Testament. First of all, Zechariah 14, 1, 2 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and the spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So he attacks those right there in Jerusalem, because they didn't leave and obey the Messiah to get out of Jerusalem when they see the abomination of desolation, their houses are rifled, which means they go from house to house fighting. Their Jewish women are raped by the Antichrist's army, and they have to fight the Antichrist's army for three and a half years until the second coming. And so it's a very dismal existence, and surviving will be very difficult for them. And then the other group, obviously, they're in Petra, are being taken care of by God. 
Notice what Revelation 12, 13 through 17 says when Antichrist tries to attack that group out there in Petra. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nursed for a time and a times and a half a time, basically three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. That's a military invasion. And he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, by a military invasion. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. We have a kind of a, an understanding that what happened is God might open up the earth and swallow the Antichrist armies in this aspect here. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went out to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they're safe in Petra. The Antichrist tries to attack them, but he's unsuccessful. And so what's the principle between the two remnants that are split up? When you obey the Messiah, he protects you. So obedience means protection. So if you can contrast the two groups, one is going to fight the Antichrist army, and they're going to have their wives raped, while the other group is protected in Petra. So again, obedience gives protection. So, but what's happening here? Pressure is being put on Israel by the Antichrist. God is allowing this. And this pressure is they're facing annihilation. She has no one to turn to. She has lost all her allies. In fact, we see this happening today, but Zechariah predicts in chapter 12 of Zechariah, verses 2 through 3, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a, a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And there's the key term, all nations of the earth are gathered against it. She will have no one to turn to. Even the United States eventually down the road will turn its back on Israel. She will be alone. And that's an important principle for all of us to understand. If we want to be rescued, if we want God to help us, conditions need to be met even in our own life. Obviously repentance. Obviously an admission of sin. Obviously when God starts breaking us down and wanting us to repent of something in our lives, to something to give up, we will start being isolated. We will start losing friends. He will pull things away from us. We will not have our safety net. We will not have our network of support. And that's what's happening to Israel. They're being isolated so that they get broken down. And we can see this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. The purpose of the tribulation is to break Israel down. It's to humble them. It shall be for a time, times and a half time, three and a half years, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Well, what does that mean? The power of the holy people has been completely shattered. It means the power behind pride, self-sufficiency, taking the gifts of God and making them your own, saying, we did this, we're a self-made people. Israel is extremely powerful, militarily-wise. They're, they're very prosperous economically because they practice biblical standards. Well, instead of saying we're, that's a blessing from God, they take it upon themselves. And we do the same thing. So in order for us to get to that point where God will help us, we have to be broken. We have to be humbled. And that's what the tribulation is doing to the nation of Israel, is humbling them. In fact... He humbled so much, two-thirds of Israel will be killed by the Antichrist. 
let me make a note that two-thirds of Israel that won't come to faith in Jesus, they're killed by the Antichrist. The one-third that makes it out alive is the one-third that's going to come to faith in Messiah. And you can see this in Zechariah 13. Well, anyway, once Israel is broken and they're facing annihilation, they have no one to turn to. They're going to have to turn to Jesus to help them. And they will. And just as the religious leaders rejected him, the religious leaders will accept him when they're finally broken. And we see this in Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. It will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. The idea here is three days prior to the second coming, Israel finally repents. Israel finally breaks down and calls on the Lord for salvation. And so basically they realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And basically they go into a national repentance, a national confession of their sin. And so, basically, they're starting the process where he will rescue them. So the first condition is they must be saved, and they must confess what their national sin is. Moses predicted that they had a sin to confess. In the future, they will have one particular sin to confess, and it's the rejection of the Messiah. Well, that rejection of the Messiah and that confession is found in Isaiah 53. And if you ever read Isaiah 53, you have to read it in this context to understand what's happening. It's Israel's very words of their confession. And it says this, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And you can read that in more depth, but that's basically their national confession. So basically, according to Hosea, on the third day they will be nationally regenerated. Everyone in the nation will be saved. Every living remnant Jew that is left will be saved. And this is a fulfillment of Romans eleven twenty five through 27. The second condition then that needs to be met is that they must plead for Messiah's return. And that same, we can see that with our own condition, that not only do we need to repent, not only do, do we need to be broken, but we must ask God for help. We cannot do it by ourselves. And that's what they're going to do as a nation. And so when you see the pleading of Messiah's return, basically, which he's told them, you have to say Hosanna. You'll see this in other passages in the Old Testament. And we see the pleading for the Messiah in Isaiah 64, 1. And it says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. We are like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You see this in Psalm 79, 8. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. And we see this in Psalm 80, verses 1, 17 through 18. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, 
you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth, return, beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. And again, the man of God's right hand is the Messiah, right? Upon the Son of Man, what did Jesus call himself? The Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. So all of these are the pleading. And again, with their pleading and with their national confession and repentance, then the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And we can see the Holy Spirit being poured out on them on Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, all the way through 13, 1. And they're regenerated. So basically then, since all their conditions have been met, they have repented, they have been broken, all these things, Jesus comes back to rescue them. And that brings us into Revelation 19 now. And that's the backstory of why the second coming happens. So, the second coming is dependent on Israel's repentance. That's why Satan wants to wipe out every Jew. If there's no Jew on the planet, then there's no one to plead for his return. So, now we enter into Revelation 19, and it says this, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's going to go to war against the Antichrist, who's trying to wipe out the Jews. If you go to verse 17 in Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So basically, when the second coming happens, an angel goes to the sun, and basically he's going to eclipse the sun and create darkness. We'll see other passages like in Zechariah 14 and other places in the Olivet Discourse where there's a blackout. It's the fifth blackout of all natural light. And basically, it's so that the whole world can see the Shekinah glory of the Messiah coming as he comes to rescue Israel. And it says, He cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. And the idea of birds that fly in the midst of heaven is giving you a category of birds. It's not talking about swallows. It's not talking about uh, bluebirds. The birds that fly in the midst of heaven in the atmosphere are of a class called vultures, eagles, ravens. Those who eat flesh. And he says, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. And basically, it's interesting that this verb and command is the same verb, ironically, of the false trinity that calls all the nations to Armageddon to destroy Israel and to fight against the Messiah. So basically, at the same time that demons are calling forth the nations to destroy Israel, the angel then is calling for all the birds, the vultures, eagles, and ravens to gather for the aftermath of the inevitable slaughter. So it's kind of ironic. Anyway, we continue in verse 18. That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now again, the idea is that the Messiah will kill the armies of Antichrist just by his words, by speaking death to them. He can kill them. And that's the idea of the sword that comes out of his mouth, is that he just speaks their death. Well, anyway, notice that the term flesh is mentioned five times in this little passage. And basically, it's telling you something. That these people, these ungodly, unregenerate people, the Antichrist army, operated in the flesh without the Spirit. So in other words, they are operated only on their sin nature, the old man. 
They never were redeemed. They never were born again. They never possessed a new spirit, a new nature. And so it's, it's a hint towards that. Well, anyway, the idea of having these vultures come and eat the flesh after Jesus kills them by the word of his mouth, it's a dreadful sign. It's a dreadful omen to these armies who are about to die as they see the birds flying in the air. It's the ultimate indignity then that their bodies are going to be left on the ground for the vultures to eat. See, in the Middle East, the ultimate indignity was not to be buried. And see, these great men, these kings, these captains, these mighty men are going to be devoured by birds. Those great men who thought they would be able to fight against Jesus are now rendered helpless against vultures. And birds eat basically the carcass of this massive slaughter of the armies of the Antichrist who participated in this battle. Interesting to note that one of the largest vultures in Israel waits for the smaller vultures to eat the flesh and basically to strip the carcass to its bones. And then they get the bones and they carry the bones aloft into the, the high hills and the high mountains. And they dash these bones against the rocks until they get the marrow out of these bones. And it's basically the Israeli vulture's favorite delicacy is the marrow of bones. Well, it's interesting that these birds will completely clean up the carcasses all the way down to the bones. There will be nothing left. And that's the idea. Interesting to note as well, vultures in Israel in Jesus' day and early on in Israel's history were protected by the death penalty because of the value that they did to clean up the cities. So they were very valuable in the ancient days. They fed on the carcasses of animals that killed each other and putrefied fish and other nasty things. And they basically cleaned up the land. So they were actually protected and looked upon as very beneficial to their society. So in this sense, again, it's going hearkening back to the first century culture, the Jewish culture, and Jesus is using these birds to clean up the mess. Another note about vultures. Vultures are also a symbol for demons. And in this sense that demons have been used to incite these armies of Antichrist to come against Israel. And so now the very thing that represents the demons, a vulture, is being used to destroy these armies. It's an ironic thing. And basically his judgment from the Messiah is the equalizer of all. Anyway, as we return to the text, it says in verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So they actually think they're going to fight Jesus before this goes down. And they're actually going to think they're going to win, which is insane. But that's the nature of sin. It makes you insane. So basically then, Jesus returns and goes first to Basra to save the remnant there in Petra. And then he will battle from Basra up into Jerusalem. And if you want to find out how Jesus fights, it's pretty simple. In Zechariah 14, 12, it says this, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. So the idea is that the Creator unmakes them. He dissolves them. And He just basically melts them is what happens here. And that's why there's so much flesh. This is why there's a lake of blood that's created after this that's 200 miles square. And then it goes in verse 20. The beast then was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
So the idea is the beast is captured along with the false prophet and they're immediately killed. And we see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed with whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So he destroys him right off the bat. We see an interesting text in Isaiah 14 that talks about what happens after Messiah kills the Antichrist. And basically, it's what they see in hell as he enters into hell, his soul, after being killed. And it says this in Isaiah 14, 9 through 21. Hell from beneath you is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you, referring to his body. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? You are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who, who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. And that is a veiled reference to once Antichrist is killed, the armies of Antichrist actually trample over his body as they are running from Jesus. You will not be joined with them in burial. So the idea of the Antichrist will not be buried. Because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare the slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. I can't go into it right now, but there's an extra thing that you can study in verse 21. The idea that in the ancient world, when a new king took over, he slaughtered that other king's family. And it notes here in verse 21, the slaughtering of the Antichrist's family, of his children. And so it could be a hint that the Antichrist actually has a family. And also it says, and fill the face of the world with cities. He doesn't want their families to continue to build cities. And that's a theme that has to go all the way back into the Old Testament, into Genesis of the idea of the cities were evil. And the, the first cities were inhabited by evil people. And if you notice, remember, Abraham decided to stay in tents rather than to go into the city like Lot did. And there's a whole theme in the Bible about tents and living in tents versus living in cities. Cities are always corrupt. And so if you want to explore that theme, you can do that and flush that out. And I, I think you'll find that very interesting. Anyway, what are the conditions for rescue of Israel? Well, first of all, we talked about this brokenness. They saw that they had been deceived by the devil into a deal with the Antichrist. They were looking for security in other places other than God. They saw then the consequences of their sin, that they was going to destroy them because Antichrist was going to annihilate them. And that's a lesson for all of us, that our sin eventually can destroy us if we don't stop. They saw that they were empty spiritually, that their own self-righteousness was not enough. They couldn't fix themselves. They had no way of fixing themselves. And basically, the only thing they saw in themselves was filthy rags in front of a holy God. No animal sacrifice could take away their sin or fix anything. They eventually got rid of what the rabbis told them to believe about the scriptures, and they finally read it for themselves, and they saw Jesus in them. 
they will read the scriptures eventually, how they're supposed to be read. But right now, what they have in Judaism is called the cult of the rabbi. They listen to anything the rabbis say, but if they would just simply read the scriptures and in the New Testament, they would see that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and that he truly is waiting for them to accept him. They confess their sin, they plead for help physically, they're saved spiritually first, and then they're saved physically second. And notice the order, spiritually first and saved physically second. And that's what happens with Israel in the future. And that's why God still has a plan for them. Well, how do we apply this? How do we put this into our court? How do we put this into our lives? Because what we're supposed to do with Israel, Paul will mention this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is that we're supposed to learn lessons from the nation of Israel. So what the nation of Israel does, we do in our personal Christian walk. And that's what Paul's point was. So what do we take away from this? Well, the issue for us is if, if you haven't been saved, you have to get to that point of brokenness in order to accept Messiah and understand that your righteousness is filthy in front of Jesus, that you don't have a righteousness of your own, that you have to get a foreign righteousness. But for our audience, most of us have already accepted Messiah. So we know that. We have accepted his, his sacrifice on the cross and have accepted his righteousness. So we get that. So how do we go further? Well, we're talking about now discipleship. We're talking about growth. Well, the issue about growth and discipleship is we have to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. That's what Israel did. They acknowledged their spiritual poverty. And in order to grow, and in order to break things out of our lives, to break free of the things that hold us down, that hold us back, you have to have spiritual poverty. Well, what is this? Well, some people, some Christians are in denial. Some people are in willful blindness about their spiritual conditions. And many times Christians, they get saved, but they don't go any further than that. They return back to thinking they're righteous. They don't see any spiritual poverty. And they fail to understand they have a problem. They like to blame others on their problems and other people. They try to avoid pain. They give excuses. They think time will heal all things. They minimize things. They put positive spins on negative realities. They avoid truthful people. They stay away from anyone that's going to tell them the truth. They get around deceitful people, actually. They won't tell them the truth. They don't want to change because they think they have it all together now. They think they've made it. They think they've arrived. They know it all. They figured everything out. And others believe that given enough time, they can solve all their problems by themselves. They're completely self-sufficient. And again, all exemplifying the attitude of Israel before they got saved. The other thing that a lot of Christians have is lukewarmness. It's a hallmark of someone who simply will not admit self-poverty, that they're poor in spirit. And therefore, that's why they're not hungry. That's why they, they, they could take it or leave it. That's why they could come to church one Sunday and miss four Sundays or five Sundays out of the month. They don't care because they're indifferent to the things of God because they lack spiritual poverty. They don't know how desperate they really are. They don't have an accurate assessment of themselves. And that's what Jesus told the Laodicean church, is you're spiritually blind, naked, and poor. And so they didn't have a good assessment of themselves. This idea of being poor in spirit, Jesus said it's a blessed position to be in. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit in the Greek indicates a cringing beggar, absolutely dependent on others for survival. And Jesus calls this a blessed condition. You have to get there in order to grow as a believer. Well, 
Here's the reality about ourselves that we learn from Israel. We are all in a deep and severe state of neediness and incompleteness before God. If that is not acknowledged, you will not grow. And by our very nature, we're broken. And we have no hope except from God. So that's part of recognizing our spiritual poverty. That's how we live in reality. That's how we open our eyes to our own brokenness. And I'm going to tell you this. When you realize your own brokenness and your spiritual poverty, you'll feel that something is terribly wrong inside. You won't feel better about yourself. This is why no one preaches this. Poverty of spirit requires more than us admitting we're incomplete. We have to feel it. You'll feel it in your heart. You'll realize your condition. You'll have an overwhelming emotional experience. And you'll feel the feelings of dependence, grief, remorse. You know, in the counseling world, that's what they call being integrated. But in the biblical scriptures, it's called loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and mind. All those things are in alliance with each other. We have to come to the end of ourselves and humbly accept our state of being, which is truly what's called brokenness. So that's where it starts. And this incompleteness orients us and drives us outside of ourselves towards God and His ways. So people ask me a lot of times, well, I don't understand my uncle. I don't understand my, 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 my adult kids, why they don't want to know Jesus. Or, or They were raised in a church and they knew it, but how come they don't seek Him? It's because of this. They don't acknowledge their spiritual poverty. Therefore, it doesn't drive them towards God. People who are hungry and desperate for God recognize their spiritual poverty. We don't understand that about salvation, but some people, for some reason, we don't understand that about discipleship. We don't understand that about our Christian walk. That's how we grow from immaturity to maturity. That's how we grow from milk to meat. That's how we correct our weaknesses, our character flaws, our morality issues, our behavior, our attitudes. That's how we do that. It's the essence of growth. It's the essence of a deeper life. If you want to go deeper with Jesus, that's the only way you're going to do it. And if you go into understanding your own spiritual poverty, it won't allow you to stay shallow. You will go deeper. Because brokenness needs to be fixed. It needs to be repaired. It needs to be mended. And that's what will cause you to seek God. And all of us have been wounded. All of us have been crushed by some loss, some person, some hurt, some injustice, some circumstances, some injury from others, hurts from the past, addictions, long periods of sin that damaged us. To not acknowledge that is simply spiritual suicide. You have to acknowledge that. You can't pretend that that stuff didn't happen to you and doesn't have an effect on you. You're absolutely insane if you do. You will put yourself in an alternative reality if you don't acknowledge that. And then knowing that forces you not only to seek God, but forces you to live relationally. And you say, what do you mean by that? Most Christians are trying to do Christianity on their own. They think they can solve their own problems. It's going to be them and God. Why did God create the body of Christ? It's because you're wounded and crushed. You not only need God, but you need other people relationally. What did he tell Adam in, in, in the garden? It's not good that man is alone. So he created a helpmate for him. It's not good that man is isolated. And so when you see Christians that don't have any friends, they isolate, they get by themselves, 
they are in a state of not understanding their poverty. Spiritual poverty seeks other people. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.